Hello and welcome to the Lifefulness Project. We are, oh, the Lifefulness Podcast by the Lifefulness Project. Uh, I'm Sanderson and with me is... James Croft. And we are two atheists who are exploring what it means to be spiritual in a secular age. The Lifefulness Podcast is our conversation and the Lifefulness Project is our community, which is sort of like a non-religious online secular church if you can imagine that. And each week we speak to different guests who help our listeners live better, help often and wonder more. Uh, what do you think about the new description, James? I think it's so clear. It's so crisp. I can vividly imagine our online non-religious secular church. I mean, that's the problem when you get into uh, non-religious spirituality. The categories we have are tricky and so uh, but we've got a great guest this week and uh, he is Fred Dust he is a designer educator author and consultant he was a senior partner and managing director at IDEO the massive design consultancy uh, and then his whole life has been around sort of co-design starting off in art and politics and social change and he calls himself a designer of conversations and he's just written a book about conversations this was a really wide-ranging conversation fred's got this great framework for having conversations his seven c's of conversation which are commitment creative listening clarity context constraints change and creation because it's so relevant to what we do at the moment, we started talking and then went on a bunch of brilliant tangents. We touched on neuroscience, the idea of God as a metaphor for creativity, the connection between losing loved ones and spirituality, even contemporary politics. He shares super concrete examples as well as many fascinating details. I just realized that in this introduction, we use the word conversation about seven million times, but it's totally appropriate because this is about conversations and we hope you enjoy it. Fred, uh, thanks so much for joining us on the Life on This podcast. We're going to be talking about your career and you've written this amazing book, which is called Conversations. And it really goes into, I love that you sort of describe yourself as a designer of conversations and uh, James and I have done this for a while and we've always had like a certain way of starting it and we're going to slightly change that so let's just go and see how it goes but we're we are going to ask you what was the spiritual religious or philosophical background to your childhood yeah well and first of all um uh, Sanderson James thanks for having me and just uh, just to clarify because my publisher will make me um it's called making conversation <laughs> so oh what did I call it Conversation. Conversation. <laughs> Epic Just... fail, Sanderson, right off the bat. Converse vague Fired. conversations. It's called chatting. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's actually funny because at least you got my name right. Like everybody's always like, and then we have Fred Durst who's written a book on making conversations. I swear to goodness, and we'll get to your answer soon, is that I went and did the thing where you ask in advance, by the way, guys, do you have any questions for our guests? Every single response has been, uh, can you ask him uh, how's it gone after Lincoln Park? I mean, it's only been Fred Durst things. So <laughs> but when you answer that question about your childhood, if you can invo involve some uh, your relationship with Lincoln Park as well, uh, that would be great. 
<laughs> Unfortunately, I have no relationship. Oh, with no. Except except for the fact that it's like I grew up in Chicago, it, right next to Lincoln Park. So it's like so that <laughs> I guess there, there's hey, it that looks. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, it was. It, this is this is going to be a really interesting. It's, it's an interesting question because I will tell you, my my great grandmother was quite religious. You know, she she believes that she saw Jesus and Jesus kind of helped her, and she was like, um, which we can tell. I can tell you that story later. And um, and yet at the same time, was probably the first in my childhood to acknowledge that that I was a gay man. Like so, it's like she she would call me Hollywood, which was kind of like when she didn't call me honey and sweetie, but, but which was her way of saying, oh, you must be gay because it's like, you know, whatever. But um, the other, the but I will also say that for a while, my, my, fam my family was absent, my parents for a lot, for most of my childhood. And so for a while they, they for two years, I lived with a um, Indian family. Um, and so I would do, I would pray to Mecca. Um, they, they would roll out a towel, um, for me alongside their rugs and I would I would pray to Mecca every every um like whatever five five times a day when when um when I did that. So I would say that and then I was raised my school was was in completely all Jewish. Um, I was the only so I actually never became a man because I never had a bar mitzvah. Um and so it's like so and 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 because of my first studies being art history you know, you have to really know the Bible. Although I've known the Bible for, um, since, because I, I took a class called Bible Myth and Epic, which was like a year long class in eighth grade or ninth grade. Um, that, that was kind of this genius kind of thing about, so I, I would say it's like, I would say it's sort of poly, poly religious, you know, in, in a lot of ways. And though, though I'm not, I'm not an atheist, um, I, I, I acknowledge faith and the need for faith. And, and there's some things in my life where I'm like, I don't understand how these things all came together. You know, it's like, if, if it wasn't as though there was some kind of like divine coincidence. Great. And then what's the, uh, so I was gonna ask you the next question in our new line of questions of like, what's the greatest lesson the secular world could learn from religion? But I'm gonna put that on hold for a bit and just say, what was it like to, like, what did you learn from like praying five times a day? Like, what does, you know, what does that bring you? What does that cultivate? A, a good sense of direction. Um. <laughs> <laughs> okay, on to the next question, Fred. Uh. <laughs> um, it's like, yeah, and and why? And it's always good to sit on the floor and stretch. It's like is is like is definitely something <laughs> something that, that I that I learned. That that was such a, a amazing experience to have. I, I mean, I will tell you the to answer your your other question though. Um, it's it's the same lesson that we're still learning, which is that um, congregations help help themselves. Like they help congregations, they help they help the communities that are, that are around them. And so it's as you know, it's during the pandemic, it's been black churches in the south that have been helping. You know, it's like it's um, I I had the good fortune to go to um, I think it's called Potter's Yard, which is a it's oh a oh my it's gosh, a mega I love church. it. Yeah, I don't know, have you have you been? It's really remarkable. It's in Dallas. Yeah. I just look at his, uh, his TG, is it Bishop TJ, TD Jakes? And he yeah. just like gets into it. He's a big sweaty mess. He's acting it all out. And you're like, oh my gosh, if I was Christian and there, I'd be a whooping and a hollering. Oh yeah, totally. And it's like, you go with them. Um, I went to like, like it's like it's like thirty thousand people, and like you you feel sort of weird because you're like it's it's really it's a, it's a black congregation. It's meant to help black and brown people, but the reality is like they're so welcoming, and you know it's like it's Dallas, and I got a lot of compliments on my hair, which was like I considered like high 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 praise. I <laughs> the listeners can't see Fred's hair, but it does look absolutely amazing. I'm hugely jealous of it. 
And it's weird. I, I, I swear to God, I don't have that auto correction thing on, but it's like, I'm like, there's something about the light in this room. That's like, I'm like, Whoa, I'm like, I'm a religious. Glorious. Yeah. <laughs> Radiant Fred. Um, but, but you know, it's like, I, I feel like I learned something from, from religion, like almost daily. I'll tell you, I, I bought a house in Maine, which, which by the way, the, the place I bought is what I would call a liminal space. It feels like it's a place where like, there's like, there's a, there's a gap between the spirit world and, and like, or, there, or there's like an opening between the spirit world and, 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 and the and North Haven where I live. But um, what's interesting is that when I bought it, I, I would bought it from a Methodist minister. And I, I was like, oh, let's do a divine reading. Cause it's like, he had a big Bible there. So I flipped it open. And the passage we read was this, this house is built on wisdom. This house is built on power. This house is built on, you know, wealth and prosperity. It's like, it was like, I was like, I was like, I think that's pretty good for a divine reading. And he's like, yep. <laughs> I, I was, somebody was asking if maybe all of the passages were just that. In, yeah, he's, he's carefully weighted it. So it opens every time. Hey, listen, the divine reading. Oh, oh <laughs> that's, that's pretty good. If you don't, <laughs> if you don't pay the asking price straight to hell, bitch. Yeah, exactly. Like what? Oh, oh. <laughs> but you know, when we talked about this a little beforehand, like it's like, I, I'll know, oh, what's the name of the, the documentary filmmaker who made the, the book on, or the made the documentary on hail Satan. I can't remember her name. She's, she really deserves to be named. Um, but you know, we were talking about the Church of Satan and the kind of the secret history of of, of the genius behind the, the Church of Satan and what it's done for us. So, Penny Lane, I think, is the name you're looking for. Yes, Penny is a Penny Lane. That's what it, that's that's right. Thank you. Uh, and well, look, that is, and we're going to get into that because your book really does go. There's so many parts where you go and look to these really old rituals, and I think it does such a great job of bringing them to life in a context which anyone can understand, and also not bastardizing them. Uh, but before we get there, we'd love you to do, you've got your seven C's of conversation. Uh, this is not like the C you go on. It's like, because you've done the great thing, which Americans always do, always to like go and make sure that like there's a nice, uh, like nice alliteration or it turns into the thing. One of them is creative listening. I'm fine with the cheat. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> So do you want to do quickly do your so that what are the like your seven C's of conversation which you think are essential? We'll yeah, jump and in every now and again. And I and I'll call out, you know, it's a it's it's it, it makes it sound like it's a methodology, but it really isn't. You know, I I want to be really clear that it's like in the seven C's, it's really it's a um it's an approach. And it's and that's really about what publishers want, is like that they really they really want the seven C's, you know, it's like but yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a there's a chapter on clarity um, that that originally was called talk normal because I was just like I was like come on let's let's get like really basic here so it's like but there um, I'll I'll, t I'll go through a couple of them and I'll tell you kind of like the funny stories around them so um, the first chapter is called commitment and I will be honest the first time I ever gave a lecture on this book before the book was out because well, that's a great way to process these things there were only six C's and it was called the creative palette and somebody raised their hand at the end and they were like, but what happens nowadays when somebody just hates you right off the bat, the moment they see you and they know whatever. And I was like, oh yeah, I forgot to think about that. And so I like reached into my back pocket and I was like, oh, you just commit to the person first and hold your values more lightly. And uh, that ended up becoming one of the most essential chapters in the book. It's it's like, it's why it's chapter one is the idea of committing to people and holding values more lightly. Well, I'm going to stop you right there because this is something which we wanted to get to, which is like, you know, and uh, so this is a big thing that James has been talking about recently. So I'm going to pass it over to you. Like, how can we actually have these conversations when 
you know, so there's so much different. So I'm just going to, I'm not going to, that's not the question. James will have other ones. No, I think that is a great question. I, I love this idea that you commit to a person and to a relationship first and hold your values lightly. That's a beautiful phrase. But I, I don't know how <laughs> but. it's possible to imagine doing that. I mean, here I am in the United States, right, in, in Missouri uh, with Josh Hawley, our senator, one of the, the you know, trumpet blasters for the, the attack on the Capitol that recently happened as we're recording this. You've got huge numbers of people in the United States committed to a political ideology that is not based on reality or facts and with no seeming desire to engage in dis in discourse, the, the feeling that people who believe things differently to them politically are the enemy who need to be turned out by violence if necessary. And is it really the job of the other people to commit to that relationship and to talk through it? When do we get to defend ourselves is one of the things I kind of want to ask. Yeah, it's like, it. so I think it is, it is um, your job to commit. And I think that, the, that to think about this conversation as something that gets resolved in 10 minutes or an hour is not the way to think about it. I think the way to think about it is to think about the long arc of the conversation. I mean, so I'm going to get really meta, but it's since you guys are like, like it's like it, you're, you're coming from the- We love meta here, Fred. <laughs> like, Don't you know, know if our listeners do, but we do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, humans have been in conversation with each other for- millennia. Um, humans have been in conversation with the earth, in conversation with like animals. It's how we actually have became apex predators. It's also how we became agrarian um, is, is that, and we will be in conversation long, long, long after we've, 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 we've passed away. So the reality is that it's like, we are still in conversation with each other, um, regardless of whether it seems like, like we are or not. Um, but, you know, just to be honest, like here, I live in Bedsty, which is a, which is a, which is New York. It's it's in Brooklyn, and um and this is really interesting. Like it's like most of my good friends here are really focused on restorative justice, you know, in 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 America, and so that we've had to I've had to really kind of have conversations where I'm like I'm committed to you, and we've had it. We'll have to talk through it, and then when I'm not here, I'm usually upstate in Bovina, New York, which is um, in Delaware County, which is a Trump voting county. And, um, you know, in our community, we really have been leaning in to, to each other in a really deep way. And so we've been able to have conversations. So I have a friend who's a neighbor who is, is a Trump, was voted differently than I did. And he, um, he was deployed as an EMT into the Bronx at the height of this pandemic. And so we were like texting him every day. And when he came home, he came to us and he just sat on our lawn and cried and told us what he saw. I mean, he did that because he couldn't go and talk to his wife and children and make them feel safe. And so it's 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 like, what's the conversation that needs to happen at the time, James? And then it's like, we, we, we can kind of expand upon that over time. Once you build those relationships, you can, you can go all kinds of places. I was gonna say, but I think you also hinted at your view of conversation, which is very different to, you know, we're in conversation with the earth, uh, we're in conversation with animals, we're in conversation with people, uh, whether we know them, like them or not, like, like what does, even if that's a real, it's almost a cosmology of conversation there, like a sort of spirituality. It, it, it really is. I mean, it's like, as I said, it's like, I have like a lot of, I, I, I feel like there's a lot of deep spirituality in, in, in the ways that I think about things. But I mean, I'll give you, I'll give you a sense, like, I mean, it's, I'll give you something really personal, two things. Um, so my dog of, of 13 years, Suki, um, 
died on Tuesday, last Tuesday. And, and so let me, let me just kind of tell you a little bit about how Suki prepped me for her death. It's like, so is, this, is this weird to talk about my dog? My dog dying? And, and by the way, it's, it's good to talk about the people you've lost because it's a way, it's a way to celebrate or, or, the, or, the, or the animals you've lost. But so the day before she died, she picked up a little fox puppet. There's, it's, I have it right here in the corner. This is at, our, at the farm. Um, and she was carrying it around like a puppy. Like it was a, her puppy. And I said, David, she's trying to tell us that we need to adopt a, a puppy so she can go and she can leave us because she's not going to be here anymore. And he was like, you're being ridiculous. And I'm like, I promise you. And then next day she was super frisky and super like kind of like in a, in a great mood. Then I had to go lock myself in my office for like nine hours, had the worst day ever. I come out, David, it turns out had just come back from the vet because he's like, she's paralyzed. And so like we carry her in to the dining room or the living room. And while I'm not looking, somehow, even though she's paralyzed, she stands up and turns her back to the living room. So I go and lie with her for a while and I'm like petting her. And then when we're eating, she dies. So it's so basically with her back to us, so she's guarding us. And, and so, long story short, but it's like, but I will tell you, my dog taught me everything I learned about making conversation. It's like it's like she's like she's like she's like genius. I am one less better for it for not having her. Like it's like is it's like she could break through anything because she was like so good. So long story short, like yes, it's 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 a meta thing, but I, I believe that like that things are in dialogue with us if you're if you're attentive, which is why the second chapter, creative listening, it really matters, right? Is that it's like it's like we really need to be attentive to the world around us and we'll and we'll hear and see things that we wouldn't see otherwise. Yeah, and I really like that. So you went when you went to the Quakers because I think there's something for me as a as someone who is uh, always get like this whole area is very complicated when you are like me have started a non-religious church and <laughs> like probably do some version of prayer as an atheist, some version of church as an atheist, and very spiritual slash. Some occasionally on the good days, if I'm in the right place, feel pretty mystical about life. But at the same time, like can find totally uh, without wanting to diss anyone else's point of view, can find uh, all the answers within the material world for me. Uh, but when you go and talk about the Quakers and, you know, that practice there, that it really like it really brought to light for me how what might work for someone as being in consultation with God. Well, actually, that's a practice that we can all go and learn from and uh maybe you could go and uh, like say like what you saw the quakers do and you know how you know that sort of internal listening how other people could could learn from it but the the thing is yeah i have i have a, i have like a neuroscientist on my team now which is kind of like genius like it's just like the amount the amount of stuff that we get to kind of unpack i, I mean I, I can talk about i had a dinner like two nights ago that was like a spiritual experience and it was pure neurochemistry that that actually made it happen but but i went to the quakers because anyone who's met a Quaker, someone who was raised in the Quaker faith, doesn't have to be a Quaker, um, will, will always be kind of like, I think fairly spectacularly surprised by their communication skills. Like there's just, there's, there's an ability to kind of connect and and that, that is, I've, I've just thought was remarkable. I did what you do, which is like, I went to the, I went to the Brooklyn Quake Quaker meeting, as you, as we always know, it's like, it feels a little funny when you're kind of in, like when you're stepping on somebody else's religion, right? Like, it's like, you don't, you don't want to, you don't want to say, and, and, and what I've always found is that people are always incredibly welcoming in, in that context as they were in this one. 
all Brooklynites, gorgeous, maybe wearing a little more gray than, than more what you might typically see in, in Brooklyn. But, you know, there's a lot of people who, who, who like, like they're gray in Brooklyn. And so what they do is they start off the meeting with listening. And and the, the premise and, and the kind of the guide that, that I had this going in was basically the idea that if God has been talking, God has always been talking to us and through us. And so the idea is you start by sitting in the room with your fellow Quakers and you listen until you feel like you might be moved to testify, which is like to stand up and say, I think we need to do, we have to think about this. This is a something that's wrong in the world. And when somebody stand, and that, that can be like, in that meeting, it was like 40 minutes of listening and only 20 minutes of, of testimony. Um, and then when somebody stands up and testifies, then basically you have to be a witness and you have to say, okay, is what they're saying, does that jive with what I'm feeling in my heart? So this actually goes back to your question, Sanderson and James. This is actually when you get to kind of judge you, you, and, you, and you can kind of say, which is okay. And you can, can say, not, not quite, <laughs> I'm gonna, that, and I'm not quite there, you know? And like, and then that's okay. That's the way that the dialogue goes forward. But there's, there's some interesting stuff that happens there. So there's the psychological theory behind it. So really, really quick little aside, sorry. It's all David Kelly, who is, uh, the founder of IDEO used to talk about bird walks where you kind of like do a little mm. wander and then you kind of come back. So if, if you're cool, I'm going on a little bird walk. We're both furious. Uh, you can probably tell from this podcast that we like to keep things on route the whole time and oof, we're upset. Yeah. Well, I know because this, this podcast is only, it's only three minutes long, right? So it's like, <laughs> you have to do a lot of editing. I feel really bad for you. Um, it's like, but what's interesting about that is when I was, when I started doing the research on it, um, the theory of creativity, which basically had a had a kind of apex um, moment. When do you want to guess when like the, the apex moment of creativity was? Think creativity research. Well, I was going to say the apex moment of creativity for my thing is I was thinking the and this is not the research. It's going to definitely be wrong. What came to mind was the Romantic period, where creativity becomes like the alternative to God where like once God is dead, we're all going to get into art and opera and that's where we're going to have these trembling sort of orgasmic experiences that we listen to Wagner before regretting it later on. That always <laughs> is what happens to me when I listen to Wagner, Sanderson, 100% of the time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> God, Wagner. Not into the music, but... <laughs> no, it's like, I mean, well, but, but I mean, you know, well, we can talk about Wagner and and, and the, the it's, I think it's called Gessem Kunstwerk, which is the, that's, which was, do you know that, the, the which Gessem Kunstwerk is, is kind of like where everything is, 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 is art, is the, yeah, the is, totality of, the totality of the art. Um, so the, the, but the nurse, so anyway, no, the, the apex in the US, at least um, in our history, was the moon, the moon race, the race to the moon. And after that, you sort of see the decline in research of psychology. And there was, I, I mean, and the research into creativity, the psychology of creativity. And then it, it came back in like 2001, and it was really about to pop again. And somebody gave a big lecture at a, at a psychological, psychological thing. And then the next day was 9-11. Um, and so it kind of, it, it declined again. I, I have a feeling that given the moment we're in, research and creativity is probably booming, right? We're having to invent new things. We are having to think about how to have the hardest conversations of our lives in via, via you know, Zoom. We're having to, we have to make new things. It's, it's gonna be a renaissance in a way. So, but in, in the psychology of, of creativity, one of the things that, that they talk about is incubation. And so incubation is moments of silence. And it's kind of like, it's equivalent to like why you have your great ideas in the shower. It's only in moments of silence that you make connections between the things that you, that seem unlikely and unconnected. 
and then bring them together. And so what Quakers are really doing is they're triggering psychological creativity. And so there's suddenly they, they can make links to things that they might not be able to make otherwise. Which I really? That yeah. sounds that does that sounds a little bit. I don't know. How do we know that? Well, well I, I, to my mind, that sounds totally true. James and always always gets into because I was going to ask you about what you think the neuroscience behind it, because I certainly know that like when you, uh, you know, when you have those moments of pause, you go and so this is uh, you get suddenly these ideas come together and they feel like a new insight. And I think that that is a skill that you learn until you're like a poet who says, I, I don't even know where it came from. My pen just started moving or you are religious and you get to until you can literally hear your body speak to you with a voice. And if you are early man, you say, well, that's definitely God. And what these different things are, are these tools for us to get in touch with our embodied cognition, our creativity and that by, and it's a really useful metaphor because and it also feels right. It's like when I go to, when I stand in front of this huge waterfall, ooh, I get certain feeling. And so I think it's the perfect, you know, that's what the, this is the conversation I wanted to have, or maybe just the agreement I wanted to have that like, it is a set of tools that have helped people to go and really look into their own body, but then to do it collectively and as a society. And that's what I really thought, which I loved about your passage was sort of making that open to everyone. But then my question was going to be to James that I would like to hear your sort of like understanding of the neuroscience of God, because James is a religious minister who uh, non-religious humanist minister, but then who often has sort of like uh, uh, some disagreements about certain spiritual language as well. It's an on-running yeah. discussion in our yeah, podcast. Yeah, James, like, what, what's up? Like, <laughs> like, give us what you know. Well, I, I don't know that I know. I'm going to give the, the typical academics answer that I don't know the research right now into that. So I'm not going to be able to, I don't want to, to speculate about something where I haven't Doesn't read stop the stop me, anything. James. <laughs> No comments, Simon. <laughs> I, I used to work with a research group called Project Zero, which did a lot of does a lot of research into creativity. Some of the some of the really original research into creativity came out of PZ. And one of the things we often find is that people make a lot of claims they can't back up about creativity, that it's one of those areas that's so sexy and people want to take it into business. They want to take it into nonprofits. And the further you get away from the science, the broader the claims become and the less rooted in the actual data. So I have an immediate skepticism after having read and written tons of articles about how people misrepresent neuroscience in tons of fields. Whenever someone says neuroscience says, I'm pretty, I, I go, pretty sure it doesn't. Uh, and so that's my immediate kind of reaction is that we know so little about the brain. And what our, our appropriate response is humility and skepticism, because basically nothing about the processes of our cognition at a neural level is understood. And that we should just be really careful about the claims we make. So that explains my my question of like, really? What's the evidence base for so, that? I mean, Who's I'll, gone I'll, into I'll, the I'll, Quaker meetings and studied it? And how have they studied it? Yeah. He's got a neuroscientist on his team, mate. Yeah, and, and plenty, plenty of neuroscientists are the worst offenders here. Like, they really are. <laughs> By the way, like he he and I are like, we, we go back, we argue nonstop, not so much um, on this stuff. Like, like um, he like he, he sent me like this 
epic text this morning about what I should be thinking about with during the pandemic. And I was like, yeah, good morning. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> I, was, I was like, this is a great way to start the day. Thanks, Rob. Um, but, uh, you know, I, uh, let me, I'm going to, I'll take you to something. I'll take you to my entirely spiritual dinner that I had on Saturday night. So I just, so you know, like I have a, a thing where it's like for me to kind of keep my energy up I, I can't I don't eat during the day I just it's like I fast which is you know it's a it's a that's actually a, a religious thing I often and usually don't eat until like around 7 30 although I just got hungry so I shouldn't have anything yeah, and talking so, about food is gonna make me hungry yeah that's gonna come with this meal but so on two because we're on we were we wanted comfort food it had been a long week it was Saturday night like we'd experienced a lot of death in the last week and um we ordered our local um fried chicken from Peach's Hot House, which is like, which is right around the corner. And like, it, and I got mine spicy. My husband got mine, it's just plain. My neuroscientist is all, was, was, was like, okay, you can have comfort food for one night. That's okay. Cause he's always like telling me like how, how my brain's gonna function better and like whatever. <laughs> it's like, so, so I, I, I sit down to have comfort food. I have just one chicken wing and this, the spice is insane. And it literally causes intense pain. And so what happens, James, when you have intense pain? What, 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 what drugs get released in your brain? Oh, gosh, I don't know things like that. Nope, dopamine. So dopamine. So anytime you're in intense pain, your body is trying to like, they'll counter it by, by, by triggering dopamine. I got high, like crazy high. Like I was literally like laughing and giggling and my husband was like you are nuts like it's like whatever Did and you then go, what was it like the simpsons where homer has the spiciest chili and you <laughs> entered into a parallel universe that's exactly right i felt <laughs> like i was like totally like seeing god like whatever it was like it was and we we're like sitting on the sitting on the, the the living room floor in in bedside you know eating eating chicken and um you know what happens after you have a dopamine rush you have a crash and so, and then I ended up in like on the floor in tears about our dog. Like I couldn't, I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop. And and also it was the year anniversary of my mom's death last year, last week as well. So it's like, so literally um, just like ended up crying until, until midnight. So anyway, what I'm sort of saying is that like all, by, by the way, all good things to do when you're in a mourning process, you know, is to, to laugh and cry and celebrate and, and do, you know, whatever. Those are, those are all, all the things that have to happen. So, so yeah, I, I, I'm pretty, I'm pretty, I think I'm pretty up on this stuff, but I could be wrong. <laughs> well, I mean, there's uh, so much that I'd like to go and explore and like, because I do think there's that like God as metaphor and I haven't yet found the way to, the right way to bring that into the workplace because it can be quite challenging because there'll be some people who'll be like, uh, I don't think he's a metaphor. <laughs> I speak to him. Uh, and so but at the same time, there's all these tools which are really useful, which come from it. However, again, I'm just going to put a bit of a pin on that. And as you were talking, I suddenly just sort of, uh, and then you mentioned your mother, uh, like there is a sort of quite a tradition, and I don't know the precise research paper, James, of people who do have like sort of absent parents and absent mothers sort of in finding spirituality and in sort of finding, sort of being attracted to those things. And I'm wondering whether you've sort of, seen a connection between this sort of passion for yours and often it might be a sense of longing or connection or whatever else it might be it's so funny i did a podcast where somebody was like oh i guess everything you learned 
you learned from IDEO? And I was like, no, pretty much not. It's like every, everything, I everything I learned, I learned from my great grandmother. I mean, to be really clear, I mean, I, that's where I learned to tell about stories. And, um, and you know, in, I will say that I find myself still haunted by my great grandmother in a good way. Like, it's like when she, when she died, just to give you like a weirdo story, I was working in the Portland City Archives, which is quite dark. And I opened the door to go outside into the park just for a moment, just to get a little bit of light. And I got blinded by the light and I heard like a warm breeze came through. I could smell roast beef and something said honey, like it called me honey. And I was like, and I was like, that was my great grandmother. And I bet she's just died and she had died. Um, and so, and, and you know, I'll, I'll be honest, like, and James, this, this will, or whoever is the biggest skeptic in the room. I think, I think it's you James for sure. Um, it's like, it's like, but, but I, I will say that one of the things is that, that when you listen to the earth, in a really deep multi-sensory way, there are things that are reaching out to you, you know, in, in, in different ways. So there were probably clues that I was hearing all the way along that my grandmother was getting ready to go, even just in conversations with other people or conversations with my mother or things like that. And, and, that's, and that's kind of how, I'll tell you the story about how I got my mom to die. To die. So in, in a good way. So my yeah, mom- Yeah, this could be a really dark podcast <laughs> uh, moment. I was worried uh, for a second. Huh? No, no. <laughs> In, in a good way. So she she she's she had a stroke when I was 24. She was aphasic and um, and uh, um, and paralyzed for most of my adult life. And um, before I went and like literally the day before, two days before she died, um, uh, three days before, I, I went to my therapist and my therapist was like, "We're gonna have to get ready for what happens when you get the call about your mom um, being on her deathbed." And I'm like, "Well, I'm not gonna go." And she's and she was like, "You're gonna go." Um, and so I was like, went from there, went to go see little women and had a good cry. And then um, it's like, and then we, my husband left again, we got the call. My husband and I left it. It's like, and they're like, you have to come, like, she's going to die. And so I went and I spent a couple of days with her, like family was around. Finally, I was like, everybody has to leave. This, this is, we, we know this story. Everybody has to leave. So everybody left, you know, it's like, I came back and I just told her a funny story about how I, I'd always wanted to go see the hotel in the stand. And so I, I, I left her for a while that afternoon to go see the hotel that was in the stand. And I basically like said, I was like, listen, like it's time for you to go. And if you, if you go, I will take your ashes and I will bury them next to my brothers, which is her, which was her favorite son. It's like, and, and you'll be, you'll be with him forever. And I was like, she's going to go. And then somehow the call didn't come through, but it turns out she went, she went around three o'clock in the morning that night. So I, it's like, so that's kind of like a, it's the conversation you need to have to kind of like help people like figure out, you know, now's the time, mm. you know, it's like, it's an okay moment to go. So we're, we're going all over the place. I will tell you morning is something that we really need to get good at right now. Like, it's like, it's like, it's one of the only ways that we'll restore and heal is like, if, if we, if we mourn. So, so it's like, and, and remember we mourn by across cultures, by wailing, by protesting, but I mean, in so many different ways um, and by, by laughing, by eating, you know, drinking all kinds of things. Uh, the hey thanks so much and by the way these are uh, exactly the conversations that we love here if uh, this is the podcast where you can have meta conversations about conversations and neuroscience and then it is also totally appropriate to talk about uh, your mum uh, passing uh, so uh, don't worry about that that it was actually a different type of uh, spiritual activity that you sort of spoke about and it was in that amazing section in your book on change uh, 
about pilgrimage and you went to Santiago de Compostela and there's one quote which I mean I learned so much about how Martin Luther King originally described his protests as pilgrimages uh, which is I didn't know and then there's this one quote you had where one handbook for pilgrim states the destination the shrine a holy mountain or a house of goal maybe God, I think, oh God, maybe you had a typo, or goal, will signify not the end of a journey, but the start, a gateway into a new way of being, of seeing life afresh with spiritually cleansed eyes. So yeah, talk to us about like pilgrimage and how it fits into your conversational sort of uh, hypothesis. And, I'll, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll tell you one of, the, one of the more amazing observations by somebody that I, that I did an interview that I, that I thought, but um, but you know, uh, the funny here's the funny thing. I'm gonna go a little bit because it's it's like so you sell the book. The publisher takes you into like so takes you out to like a really fancy restaurant. Like it's like like a Japanese lunch, you know, typically. And you're sitting having like your Japanese lunch, and they're like, "It's yours. You gotta do whatever you want. We're not gonna touch it." And so she's like, "I, I love my publisher." She's like, yeah, "That's what you have to do. No problem." Um, and she's like, "Oh, but the book was called Designing Dialogue." And you can't say design and you can't say dialogue um, in, in, in the book. And then she's like, also she's like, mostly the book was about how you how we lost our ability to have conversations. And now your book has to be relentlessly optimistic. And I was like, um, that's a different book. And she's like, I know, get writing. And so it's like, <laughs> and so the books, the book sold, it goes into contract, all this sort of stuff. And I was like, I think I'm going to go on pilgrimage to research pilgrims because I, I, I hear that they have a really great connection, you know, just from having read like, I mean, even if you read like the Canterbury Tales or if you read like um, the Decameron, which is one of my favorite, it's not really pilgrimage, it's more about plague, right? It's one of my favorite, favorite kind of all time books. We only do about 110 or 120 miles of it. So that's, that's about, 20 miles a day but the reality is like one day we got lost and so it was like 30 a day my, my husband and i come down to the santiago de compostela like i don't know if you guys have ever been in the plaza but it's basically it looks like a painting of god like that of, of heaven of what you think heaven looks like um and you descend into it and everyone's dancing and crying and hugging each other and and you're like and taking their shoes off and you're like this is ridiculous and then the next thing you know, you're dancing and crying and, and hugging and taking your shoes off. And what you realize is that you can't research pilgrims, you become a pilgrim. I've, I realize that that's a, I've, I take that on as a metaphorical way as well. There are secular pilgrimages, there are pilgrimages to, to your sites of favorite of your favorite writers. You know, it's like, there's like, there's all kinds of amazing pilgrimages that we, that we go on all the time. But the point is to notice that chapter change, the main lesson I would say, is that you need to notice change when it happens and that we're actually not that good at noticing when change happens. So the moment that you feel like something has really elevated a conversation or it's really shifted to a new level, you need to say, stop, something's changed. And then you go forward. And that allows you to progress and keep going forward and keep going forward. And that's really, that's what pilgrimage teaches you. That's what the religious women's book club, um, the sex book club in, in Salt Lake City teaches, taught me was like, Donna Ree, who's very religious um, and 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 not Mormon. Everybody thinks they're Mormon, but she's not. She wasn't Mormon. She's more. It's she was. A, she's a Protestant. Um, when she read when they when her group group read Fifty Shades of Grey, they started being like, "Is that a thing? Like, do people really tie people up and stuff like that?" And then Donna Ree at the end was like, "Hey, hey, everyone, we just changed." And then when I had called them, as you know, they um they had just read or they had just watched Deep Throat, 
and their question was like interesting after 50 shades of gray yeah exactly yep. they were like how do we get rid of this videotape we can't take it to the library and i'm like i have no idea i've never seen people <laughs> The uh, uh, James on our chat, uh, which happens alongside, has pointed out that we have we still I think we've done the first of your we've done the first of your C's. So maybe quickly go and outline the seven C's. There are uh, so many. Uh, we, we, just done multiple. We did we did creative done, we did creative listening. We did creative uh, listening. Very good. And we and we we did change. We've um, done change, which is the pilgrimage. Exactly. Noticing change. There's clarity and clarity very simply is like, how do you kind of make sure that you're well understood? Um, by the way, if you, if you want on my Instagram, uh, which is FD brave, I just did a quiz yesterday on a pilgrimage that I did. And I basically, it's like, it's like, Hey, tell me what's, how is this demonstrating clarity? How, it's, it's like, it's, it's a kind of, kind of funny yeah. little game that we played. Um, so clarity, um, that's just about talking normal like and it's like and 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 the baseline there is that we often use language that purposely and this by the way is embarrassing it's an opening paragraph it purposely obfuscates conversation which is like obfuscates is not a very clear term i would say but it's you know we do that in business jargon we do that in religion you know it's like it's like we we, we all kinds of interesting kind of things and in fact did you know that where the word agenda came from you might no, I don't. Agenda, agenda is ancient Latin, and it was actually used to set up the mass. Um, oh. And so a, a mass was typically an agenda to the mass, um, which you think about it like, when are you silent? When are you listening? When are you in conversation with each other? When are you singing? Like, it's like that, there's, there's, a, there's a cadence to the way a good agenda should go, right? Um, my favorite one is context. I thought it was irrelevant. I was like, oh shoot, like this is this is I'm, this is worthless. And context is super super relevant. Um, you know, right now it's like it's like I'm seeing you both where you are. You know, which is like which is which is which really matters. You know, it's like, um, and honestly, one of the things that I've been most purposeful about, like in this in the pandemic time, is my husband and I setting the table for each other, like making sure that we set the table at dinner and we clear away all the stuff that that's there. And we, we, we sit, we typically sit on the floor on the coffee table in the, in the living room more than we sit at the, the dining table, which is also good for your aging bones. Cause it's like, you have to lift yourself up and off, off the ground, but it's like, but it's, it's a, it's a really um, powerful thing. I mean, when yesterday we went to, we went on a kind of pilgrimage to a Japanese tea garden and the reason why was because we weren't allowed to go there with our dog. So we knew it was a place that Suki had never, we had never been actually gone to. And, um, you know, the, the traditional tea um, house, like, cause I learned the tea ceremony in Tokyo from a 95 year old tea master. Um, usually the, 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 the rumor, we could not back this up. We tried to find the research around it, but is, is that the reason why the door was so small to a tea house is because samurai had to, um, take off their armor and leave their swords behind in order to actually kind of sit there. That's what she told me, but we can't, we can't authenticate it. So if you guys, if any of your listeners can, can send me authentic, like authentic, like any, anything that says that's true, that'd be great. I'd love it. We've got a lot of samurais who listen. So <laughs> okay. it's kind of, as, as, of as I would expect, but, but context was really, it was, was kind of like a, it was, was a joy to write. Obviously I'm an architect. Well, I'm a, I was an, I was an artist first and then, then, then an architect, but I, um, 
you know, I mean, and interestingly, like a really interesting book is like to, to, to a couple books to, to call out are in praise of shadows, which is why darkness matters in architecture, um, which is a, it's a Japanese very short book. And there's another one called um, Thermal Delight in Architecture, which sounds like it would be so dull, James, but it's like, it's about, it's about the um, neuroscience of why things like the sound of water makes you feel cooler if you're in 110 degree weather or something like that so it's like a it's a it's really it's a it's a amazing um... sounds totally fascinating doesn't sound dull at all <laughs> <laughs> and the oh sorry have we done all seven yet I... no well, then two more constraints which is like which is rules noticing mm. the rules setting and resetting the rules over and over again so a really pivotal as you know the book has these things called yeah conversation breaks and a really pivotal one, probably the most pivotal one. In fact, I just explained the architecture to my team because they were like, I never really understood the script spotting one, which is about how to spot the scripts that are already mm. established, um, either by a space or by the rules of a conversation or by an agenda. And it happens right before the context chapter. And that's because it, it, you have to know that before you go into the context chapter, like you have to see where the scripts are in, in a space, right? Like it's like, and so that's it, that was really one of my favorite pieces. And it, but that's that's sorry, that's the pivot point in the whole book. Yeah, and I think that that's so like when we go and think about like even when you're booking a venue or uh, whatever it might be, like you you're instantly like establishing a contract with whoever walks in. And I I did a uh, I did a comedy show, and it was really one of the most fun things that I'd done. Uh, it, it was comedy and well-being and it was taking my having done the sort of non-religious church for I'm still in, involved in it but I'd moved on from formally leading it and then uh so still volunteering and so I did comedy and well-being and to my mind I was like well it's comedy and then we're also going to have some well-being but then people had seen the word well-being and were like oh well this is a well-being space and then instantly that is a totally different uh that's a totally different contract to we're going to combine like do well-being in a comedy space and it uh it let me tell you did not go well <laughs> well you know it's funny because uh, weirdly like you know i'm on the faculty of SLN and and do a lot of things on spirituality and well well-being and stuff but but one of the better this has been a phenomenal conversation but one of the better ones i had last year was with um the the guy who does the yes and podcast for second city um, I don't know if you know the the yeah, Second City, but Second City. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you, you so might you for explain. Sure. Yeah, yeah. But Second City is like kind of like the world's foremost um, kind of improvisational theater. And and this guy um, who 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 does the podcast, he also does the training on to to primary care like or, or like nursing care or um, family care providers on why why the rules of improv yes and work for people who, with Alzheimer's or people with it with a deep illness. Is like instead of it's easier to say to somebody who has Alzheimer's who says my daughter is coming tomorrow tonight um, to say yes and maybe she'll come tomorrow, you know it's like it's like as opposed to no she's not she's coming tomorrow you know it's like so it's like so there, there's a um, there's a lot that, that that and it was really interesting because he and I got on and we ended up talking about his daughter's death um and because she had died this year and she was like 16 and we have this kind of really i think kind of like really profound opening up um kind of kind of conversation that was that was remarkable and the the last i think that so um constraints i think is important that's that's setting and resetting the rules and my my point is if the rules aren't there to help you 
then you don't have to go in, you know, or else like, you don't, don't commit to rules that you, that you don't feel safe with, you know, it's like, that's, that's kind of like the, the high level. Um, and then I think the last chapter, which is the shortest guys, I have to, I have to do a little reading and it's like, I realize, oh my God, this one is like, it's like 20 pages or whatever is on create. And create is typically where I would begin a talk. But one of the simplest lessons from there is when you can't have a conversation, James, make something together, like just, just create, you know, it's like, and I gave a lecture early in the year and somebody was like, you know, we, um, a young woman has been DMing me and she's just like, I asked my father to, who voted differently than I to just teach me how to play golf. And I don't really want to play golf, although I'm kind of enjoying it. And we'll, um, and, and it's, it's brought us together. So Fred, you were just talking about, if you can't have a conversation, create something together. And that really rings true to me because my first ever job was teaching Shakespeare in prisons. And what we would do is we'd go into the prison with a bunch of students and actors and we would put on a play together, basically do some workshops and then eventually work towards putting on a Shakespeare play with professional performers and um, and inmates all performing together in the prison and people from outside the prison would come in. And we often had the experience that people who were working on the play together who would otherwise never speak to each other would develop a relationship through the creative effort they are engaged in together and then be able to have conversations they would never have before. And one of the most powerful was one, was a guy who was in prison for a long time. He had on his arm a tattoo of Combat 18, which is one of the, the white supremacist neo-Nazi groups in England, very, very, very racist organization. And he wouldn't speak to black people before he engaged in our play. And then he was in the Shakespeare play with a bunch of black performers. And after that, the group fundraised in the prison so that he could have the tattoo removed from his arm and they've raised the money. And I think that really shows you're right. Creating something together can create relationships that don't exist. And you can sort of sidle into the conversation by way of this third thing that becomes That's your focus. Right. Yeah, no, I, I feel like that with my team. I mean, you know, we've been working together since March one and it's like, and I'm like, we're kind of putting on a play, you know, <laughs> it's just like, it's like, like we'll, we'll do, we'll do a conversation and, it, and it's like the really good ones feel like good TV, you know, <laughs> it's just like, it's like, or, or like you've had a, you've had a real conversation, which we have had a real conversation. So, um, you know, it's like, I, I will say one other thing that's interesting about that create chapter is that a lot of books got canceled or put aside. Um, so I, the reason I have a farm upstate is because during Sandy, someone was coughing on a elevator. This, this is like a, a listening thing. And I was like, okay, yeah, New York doesn't, Manhattan doesn't do it, make this. Like, it's like, so we, we, we've got three and a half hours Northwest of Manhattan. And um, so we were locked down on our farm since March one, basically. And um, so with my, so my publisher calls me and she's like, you have an afternoon to write a pair, uh, to write a, a four page chapter on how to have the hardest conversations of your life dur over a during a pandemic over Zoom. And I did it. It's like, it's like, it's like, and you know, one thing I'll say, James, that goes, to, I think to one of your, 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 your appropriate kind of um, skepticism is that, um, you know, people, people often say that like, creativity like just just hits you or whatever but it's like it's it's as you know it's it's work it's real it's real work uh, that that said one of the best pieces of advice I got when I was writing the book was write 800 words a day and write write where you're at meaning like if something comes to you on the subway write on your phone 
Like it's like, and so, so I would just, that's how I wrote the whole book. And so the book, the book was 500 pages. We just had to edit it to the 220 it is right now. Or something like that. But um, okay, so just uh, putting like looping back to our yeah. other discussion where about, about the link between creativity and this idea of God is that again, I think that there's, you know, so many parallels between it of like when there's some days you're going to feel that you're far away. You know what? You've still got to sit down and go and make something. Uh, and, uh, you know, other times you're going to feel that you're full of creativity. And, and then if you're not, you've got to go and do these different things. Like the connections between creativity and, uh, and spirituality, I think that's where a lot of, like so many of our, like the artists and performers, you know, particularly if they're not religious, which is far more common in the UK than in the US. Like you, you like finding a religious uh, stand-up comedian is like, there's not many in the UK. Uh, and, and yet this urge has gone and been put into creativity. It's the same thing, the same passion, but I think unless you find a way to connect it to the sort of existential questions, it, it connect it to the uh, sort of cultural questions, the political questions, like really everything, then you're sort of, then you're losing that part of spirituality, which speaks to all of society. And it's not a question, but it's just, I think that's why I really like, think it's important to dig into this and to go and give people a language and around it. And also why I love getting spiritual people in the different groups. This is like in the Lifefulness Project, we found we've got more people who are religious than we had in Sunday Assembly, which is, uh, you know, went around the world and is described as the atheist church. But I think that's really useful because spiritual people like, have a different explanation for the feelings that they have and as such they then get different values from them and yeah. i think there's so much to learn yeah and and and, and it's interesting because it's like i also said that for a lot of people like religious spirituality and creative are all equally hard words it's one of the reasons why i actually I, I, I call the book Making Conversation is because like some people won't see themselves as as able to kind of fit themselves into into creative creativity. But but I would agree with you. And I would say that like as I was writing, often the most inspiration would come as I was when I was, I was walking along the Camino. I would like stop and write for you know ten minutes on the phone. You know if I if I, if I needed to. You know it's like and then I'd run and catch up with my husband or whatever. But it's like but it was um it was it was it was, you were, it, it was equivalent to being struck by the muse or like something like that it's like that's that's kind of how it felt as as, as it happened um and i think very little of that that pilgrimage is barely in there like a lot, a lot of it, a lot of it was cut out but it's a um but the um we were able to keep the, the martin luther king thing because i just thought that was fascinating you know it's like and, and and certainly to think about the idea that like but martin luther king himself went on pilgrimage i think to india um at, at some point as he could give himself a break to go to go do that and it's like i think he called it a pilgrimage um but it's like it, it was a it really anyway just really interesting and I, I will say that just for for your listeners who might not understand it the idea of saying that i think the only only march he did that was actually branded like a pilgrimage on what was it was a pilgrimage on washington was basically saying we're going to go a long way and we're all even though this is a place that we think is a might, might be oppressing us it's still it's still our our place 
you know, so we still need to go to Washington, you know, it's like, it's, it's like, and so I, I thought that was a really kind of stunning um, way of thinking about the, a, a march on Washington. Great. And we're getting to the uh, uh, tail end of this conversation, but it's been really great. And I, uh, there was just one other thing that I wanted to ask you about. And uh, don't worry, it's not one of those things we save an absolute like nightmare <laughs> question. I was going to gonna say, it's like, like, it's like, what is the, yeah, yeah. the sex tape? Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. If I asked this at the start, he wouldn't want to continue. Uh, no, it was actually just this one uh uh, I well actually there's there's two of them which were and this is just an example of the uh, like how it talks about this stuff and positions it sort of culturally but then you know two of them are just like super like one the hunch hour and the other one the wine and dine and I'm just wondering whether you could give our listeners just like a little breakdown of what both of those are because I think they're just uh, so simple, but like- Yeah, the, the, the wine and dine is the way we discovered, the project that we did at IDEO that was called Keep the Change for Bank of America. And and the wine and dine is, is, we just basically got a bunch of mothers together, got them drunk and had them complain about how they saved money. And one woman basically was like, the only way I can save money is like by having a bag in my purse, a plastic bag in my purse. And every time I buy coffee, I put the change, I keep the change in my purse. Like I put the change in my purse. And we were like, Oh wow, we're gonna we're gonna call that concept. What do we call it? It was like Roundup or something like that. And 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 then then we're like, wait, keep the change is like such the, the, the better name. <laughs> you know, like, so that that's that. And then the hunch hour um, is and it's funny we're we're doing a lot right now because I'm finding them to be highly motivational. So I'm doing a lot of them um, to kind of to, to kind of get up there. The hunch hour is a really sophisticated um, thing that was invented by a woman named Courtney Martin. I think I just renamed it and stole it. Um, but it's like, but I just want to oh. give her credit. But but she We've did got it. The it was, same sort of uh, working strategy and methodology. I like it. Yeah, it's, <laughs> exactly. I mean, I'm like, I'm like, hey, everyone. Like, it's like, just anyone got a good idea? Let's let's bring them together. But um, but she um, she taught a thing on how to do um, op eds. And the idea was she did it like the way she thought an ideal newsroom would, would have a conversation. That's not the way newsrooms have conversations, by the way, which is that you, you know, Sanderson would throw out a hunch. Um, Jane, I would, I would confirm it and give you a piece of evidence that actually helps that hunch kind of go forward. And James would probably complicate it and do something that actually makes it kind of more, more difficult. So we've been doing things yeah, probably. like, you know, it's, yeah, well it's, like, for it's like, like, like Sanders saying, like, what, what's a, what's a prediction you have for the coming year that, and you can't say politics and you can't say um, pandemic and you can't, and it has to be uplifting. Do you have, do you have, have a thought? Sorry, I put you on the spot. It's, uh, it's something lightly held. The, uh, the, there's going to be more parties in November, 2021 than there have been in other, any other November on record. Yeah, I think I think that we we have I can confirm that by looking at um, at what happened uh, basically after like the, like the like the sort of the the Roaring Twenties right it was like after after like the um, the was that, that was like World War One and then it, it was kind of responsible. And so James, and James now has to complicate, complicate. it. Thumbs down. Well, you really think that we're going to be out of this pandemic by November? So, I, so. I, I think you've got a really good point. <laughs> But, and by the way, that's the way I've been able to actually, honestly, and I don't want to say this, but this is weird, but I've been able to kind of disarm most of the haters on Twitter by just being like, you know, it's like, 
I had a really interesting thing, and then, then I'll stop. And is that is that cool? That's but, great. I do. Yeah. Like no, I want to know how to disarm haters on Twitter. <laughs> this will make this the most successful podcast in the history of humankind. I've had the vegans. I've had like whatever bits. Of, but um, uh, this weekend I got a bunch because McKinsey listed did a big, a big piece on Thursday on on this, and then of course McKinsey's been getting a lot of like um hate on kind of like we're, I think we're working with a with Putin. I don't watch. I don't read the news all that closely. And so basically I got called out and they were like, oh really? So you're, 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 it's in your message that people that you should be kind of hiding, you know, what things, what people say and, and whatever. And I, I basically wrote back and I was like, I'm a gay man. There's no way that I can like, I can condone the hiding of the deaths of gays and lesbians in like Chechnya. Um, and they wrote back and they were like, this really wasn't targeted at you. You know that. And I was like, yes, thank you. I just, it's nice to hear from you. And that was it. Now, now they're following me. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, we've saved the best till last. Uh, and uh, Fred, I just want to uh, thank you so much for your time and for blessing us with it. Uh, I love the book and I cannot wait until I go and sort of put these different things into uh uh, into practice and uh, from a personal view uh, obviously I love how you're looking to these lessons from spirituality and sort of translating it into ways which sort of are able to connect in our ever uh, secularizing world and I can think of uh, you know no better sort of standard bearer for it where can people go and get more Fred Dust not Fred Durst well, they can go to Fred Durst's conversations um, <laughs> It's like, so they, they can they can go to the the independent bookseller of their choice or they can go to Amazon um it's like it's it's like Amazon UK and then also um or they can go to my my site making conversation and subscribe because we're actually building a game out of it right now so there, there'll be a game probably done in the next couple of weeks that will be that will be um way easier to, to do than read if you don't if you don't feel like reading so I'm so excited for that yeah. not because I'm not going to read the book but because <laughs> wow <laughs> right. It's uh, like we, we, we had a we had a great like session on on game mechanics uh, last week and we're, we're working on it right now. So, uh, well, look, that's going to be great. Thanks so much, Fred. And thank you very much, James. And thanks for listening, everyone. Hey, thanks for listening. I really hope you enjoyed that. It was yeah great to speak to Fred. And we, we haven't had many people from, if I think back to it, many people from the business world in and uh, yeah, it was fascinating to hear how he's using a lot of ideas which are really adjacent to what we're doing, but then sort of taking it out into, you know, uh, to like Bank of America to help them design uh, uh, whatever that might be, a new form of savings app just by getting women smashed. Uh, but uh, yeah, it was wonderful conversation. I really hope you like the, uh, yeah, the new uh thing at the start that we did i'm i really i love the the sort of lifefulness questions we like that's been really helpful to go and get stuff out about you know actually how every single person on the podcast is sort of doing things which are aligned with that and that's part of the work we're doing at the lifefulness project also part of our research on the other hand it's good to jump straight into uh, our guests knowledge and the stuff they're really good good at so anyway we're going to keep on uh sort of uh trying different stuff uh what's going on in the lifefulness project oh my god i don't know 
I don't know if you've seen, this was the week that we're selling our flat and then the buyer pulled out. And last Wednesday, I think it would have been the day before the podcast came out, I put out this sort of dumb joke video for the flat, like a you know a little comedy vid. And it's ended up getting sort of picked up by the Daily Mail, by the Metro, by Lad Bible, uh, of all places, my spiritual home. Uh, for me, the Archbishop of Banterbury. Uh, and yeah, it's just really weird. Uh, but we ended up getting loads more uh, interest in our flat. So maybe it's all going to work out well in the end. Uh, but that was quite, uh, I can forget by even going like mini viral, like it is just, uh, you just go and get like loads of comments in loads of different places and particularly with something like this where then having to organize house stuff and you end up having to have lots of backwards and forwards with different people and uh yeah it's really fun but then uh for my adhd mind it can sometimes be a little overwhelming uh well that's it that is the uh, end of this podcast i uh, really hope you liked it and uh, yeah, obviously the life on this project, we're not just a podcast, the conversations that we're having here, like really go and inform the community that we're building and the life on this community, you can go and find out. Uh, the link is below www.lifefulness.io forward slash membership and we're going to be opening some more small groups soon so uh go and check it out get involved and uh speak to you soon uh what else is there the credits uh thanks so much to james for being an amazing uh co-host with all of his skepticism oh i even found yeah go in the links again i even found an article which shows about silence and creativity He'll probably say that even the neuroscientist who wrote it didn't agree with it. Uh, then thanks to uh, Mavs, the uh, producer, Will Andrews for the artwork, and Roman Rapak and Miro Schott for the music that you're listening to right now. <laughs>